Turn with me in your Bible this morning to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. We're going to read today from verse 21 of the first chapter right through to the verse 30. Philippians chapter 1, commencing to read at verse 21. Let's hear the word of the Lord. We're reading, of course, from the authorized version, believing to be a most faithful and most reliable translation of the Holy Scriptures out of the original Greek and Hebrew. Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, that is the fruit of my labour. Yet what I shall choose I would not. For I am in a street betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith. That your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you, or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a, an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which he saw in me, and now here to be in me. Amen. We know that God will stamp with his own approval and blessing this reading of the Holy scriptures. Now my text this morning is taken from Philippians chapter 1 verse 27. It reads as follows, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And my theme today is the privilege of modeling the gospel. Now up to this point in Philippians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul has been talking about his life in prison. What he thinks and how he feels in the depths of his soul. Remember he's a prisoner of Rome. He's under Nero. He could be executed at any moment. The believers in Philippi therefore found Paul's imprisonment very hard to understand, hard to take, hard to reconcile how and why this could be the will of God for their pastor at this time. So to reassure them, Paul puts their mind at ease and he writes this in the verse 12. But I would you should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. He's telling them this, that his imprisonment in Rome has led 
to the spread of the gospel. That's what the word furtherance means, at least in part. It, it, it means the, the, the spread of the gospel. And also, his imprisonment has led to precious souls being saved. Because there's now saints in Caesar's household. If you look at verse 13, So that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. It's interesting that in the palace, even in Nero's household, there was those who had got saved because of Paul's imprisonment. And another thing that has happened in light of his imprisonment was that many others outside of prison, have been emboldened and enabled not only to stand up for Christ, but to be involved in the spreading of the gospel. Many have taken heart by Paul's bonds and went out and boldly preached the gospel. Yes, it's true, he said, some preach Christ out of envy and strife, but, but many others preach out of love. And, of course, Paul tells them that he himself has set for the defense of the gospel. And Paul's saying here, I, I want you to know that even though I am present, the situation is not altogether hopeless because God, remember, is able to work in any set of circumstances. Paul's not discouraged. He's not dispirited. He's not defeated. In fact, he's full of confidence. He, he's delighted. He's content to know that the gospel is being spread, that souls are being saved even in Nero's household, and that God's people outside of prison are prepared to stand up for the gospel. Paul, I believe, is not putting on a good appearance. He's not pretending. I believe he's genuinely announcing to them that he is willing here even to sacrifice his own life for the sake of the gospel. Think of verse 21. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And he tells us here in these verses also about his desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Yet nevertheless, it was needful for him to abide in the flesh for the benefit and for the good of the church. Now, now after telling these believers about how he thinks and feels about his time or being in prison, he then proceeds to tell them how they ought to be living outside the prison cell. And that's really what verses 27 to 30 is all about. He is directly appealing, I believe, to the whole congregation in Philippi, and also to every true child of God the world over. And once again, his focus is on Christ in the gospel. Jesus Christ is mentioned 18 times in this portion of scripture. And what he is saying is this. It's a direct appeal about living out the Christian life. If you profess to be a Christian, if you claim to be saved, if you say that you're a child of God, then you must live as a Christian. You must live as a child of God ought to live. If you're in Christ and you're living for Christ and you're living through the strength of Christ, then you must also show Christ in your lifestyle. He wants them to see and understand the real privilege of modelling 
the gospel of Christ. Now, you young people are familiar with the word model. You have probably heard in school about role models. Role models in society, someone to look up to, someone to admire, someone to aspire to be like, to follow in their footsteps. And of course that's true for many people in relation to the football world or the world of Hollywood or the fashion icons of the day. But Paul is lifting the thought of being a a model And he's lifting it into the highest spiritual sense. And what in effect he's saying is this. Be a role model for the gospel. To to understand the privilege of modeling the gospel. He's making a direct appeal here of their duty, their responsibility, their privilege. Not, Not in a spiritual vacuum, but in the very context of the gospel. Here's how we ought to live, in effect, he's saying, in an ungodly world. So that's our thought this morning. The privilege of modelling the gospel. And here it is, Philippians 1 verse 27. Now, there's three things here this morning. First of all, walk worthy of the gospel. Look at the first part of the verse. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. I want you to see the priority of this walk. The section begins by the word only. You see, it points to a sense of priority, a sense of urgency. The word in the Greek, mono, means one thing above all else. In other words, it's emphatic. This one thing, this one thing only. It's important that you grasp this. It's important that you understand this. I can almost see Paul in prison holding up his index finger uh, and and, and to, to, to signify the one thing, just one thing. Despite what's going on around you, individually, collectively, despite all the persecution, the hardship, despite living in an ungodly world, despite the bad things that you feel are happening in your life, make sure that this one thing is paramount. You give priority to this one thing. What is it? To walk worthy of the gospel. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel. You see, the word conversation here isn't just to do with our words or speech, or language. Now, it does include that. But it literally means your manner of living, your conduct, your, your lifestyle. If I could put it that way, only let your manner of living, or only let your lifestyle be as it becometh the gospel. You see, it has to do with the course of one's life, the conduct of your life. All that you believe and the way that you behave. The word conversation literally means live as citizens. You see, the verb Paul uses relates to our English word politics. It was a word built in the Greek word for city, uh, polis. And as the over 
tones of citizenship and responsibility. Now these believers were living in Philippi. Philippi was a free Roman city. In other words, the citizens of Philippi enjoyed the very same privileges that the citizens of Rome enjoyed. And all the responsibilities, the legal protections were the same. And they knew what it was to be citizens of Philippi, (coughs) citizens of one place, and yet also at the same time, citizens of another place. We could really say they had dual citizenship because they were citizens of Philippi, yes, but they were also citizens in that sense of the Roman Empire. And Paul is picking up on this. And he's elevating it to include... Our heavenly citizenship. Turn over there to Philippians chapter 3 verse 20. Now we'll come back to this verse. But I just want to emphasize this. Look at Philippians 3 verse 20. For He says here. For our conversation is in heaven. And that word conversation. Has to do yes with manner of living. But it's manner of living as citizens. For our conversation or our citizenship is in heaven can you see that Paul is saying because you're citizens of heaven while on earth with all the persecution with all the ungodliness and ugliness of things that are going on around you you ought to live and behave as the very citizens of heaven You ought to live as heaven's citizens. Notice the wording. If you go back to the text. Only let your conversation. That is manner of living as citizens. Be as it becometh the gospel. Now the word becometh. That's an old fashioned word. What does that mean? Something that's fitting. Something that's appropriate. Something that's proper. Something that's right. Something that fits well. Now I want to tell you this morning that true Bible-believing Christianity we could sum it up in a theological creed. And of course it's right that we have got sound theology. We could say we have creedal statements. I believe. We could quote the Nicene Creed. We could quote the Apostles' Creed. Although I'll have to tell you something if you've got an Amazon Alexa And you ask Alexa to repeat the Apostles' Creed. She doesn't know it. If I've already tried. But that's neither here nor there. We we can say, I believe the Nicene Creed. Or I I believe the Apostles' Creed. Or I believe the Westminster Confession of Faith. But let's remember that true Bible-believing Christianity is not only theological, but it's also immensely practical. And it has to impact on every aspect of our lives. I was saying this this morning to the boys in the Bible class in thinking about understanding the will of God. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If any man be in Christ, he is what? A new creature. All things have passed away and all things have become new. In other words, that man who's in Christ, who's saved, who's a Christian, he will live and behave differently. And the conduct that he lives... That will be appropriate conduct. He'll not want to imitate the ways of the world. 
He will certainly not want to live like the ungodly. He will not want to be like the um, merchants of Philippi or, or maybe even the bankers of Philippi who live ungodly lives without of Christ and use their, their, their craft and their wealth and their own cunning ways. But his lifestyle or her lifestyle, their manner of living as citizens of heaven, that will be dictated by the gospel. That's what Paul's getting at. Let me illustrate that. There's a, a chaplain to the Queen Mother, or the late Queen Mother. I, I don't know his name, but he was in Buckingham Palace. And this was uh, around about the war time. And uh, he was coming out at the same time the Queen Mother was coming out. And she had young Elizabeth, now our queen, and her sister Margaret. And they were being escorted out to a waiting car. And they were going to something like a children's party or some sort of children's do. And the, the minister thought to himself, Now I wonder what the queen mother will say to the girls as he gets them into the car. So he, he slowed his step a wee bit and sort of hung about just uh, ever so patiently. Uh, and he waited to hear. Uh, and... Um, he, he may have thought, he could have said, well, be good, children, or you better behave yourself because I'll deal with you when you come home if you don't. But this is what she said as you got them into the car. Now, remember who they are. Elizabeth and Margaret. Royal children. Royal manners, please. That was it. That was all she said. But that really struck him. Struck the chaplain. Remember who you are. You're children of the king. And because you're royal children. Then royal manners. Royal lifestyle. In other words. One impacts upon the other. And you see. If we remember who we are. We're citizens of heaven. We're, we're, we're the children of King Jesus. Then we'll want to live as children of King Jesus. Royal children will result in a royal lifestyle. That's the priority. Now, I want you to think of the practicality here. Because if we remember... <clears throat> that all Christian conduct really flows from Christian theology. Remember the maxim, right believing results in right living. That's a good thing to remember. If you forget everything else this morning, just remember this. Right believing results in right living. If you believe right, you'll live right. And right living, well, it's rooted in right believing. If you believe right, you'll behave right. There, there's maybe a, another way to put it. In other words, our life will be governed by what we believe. And, and, and Christianity, of course, our conduct not only flows from Christian theology, but, but true Christianity, as I've said, is immensely practical. There's a practical question of, of how we live. And what does it mean to live according to the gospel? Could I just suggest this morning, as we think of walking worthy of the gospel, that we live for the honour and glory of God. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We're not going to live for ourselves. 
In all that we do, whether we even eat or drink, we, we do. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, to the glory of God. If salvation, all of God. And if it starts and ends with God. And all that we have is from God and, and of God. And if the gospel is all of God, then surely it makes sense that we must live for God. Colossians 1.10 talks about to walk worthy of the Lord. See, this world has no thought or regard for the things of God, neither for his day or for his word. But why are we here? Why has he saved us? Why has he sanctified us? Why has he separated us unto himself? To live for God. It's not enough to learn about the gospel, young people. It's great that we learn. But we must also, having learned the gospel, Live the life of the gospel because the gospel of God will impact on every area of his life and at the heart of that will be this desire and thought to live for the honour and glory of God. And as we live for the honour and glory of God, there'll be a hatred for sin. The Bible teaches us in this revelation of who and what God is that God is holy. The high priest's mitre had a little gold plate emboldened onto it and with these words, holiness unto the Lord. We think of Hebrews 1 and 9, the Lord Jesus, that he loved righteousness and hated iniquity and God hates sin. In fact, the Bible says thou art of pure eyes and behold iniquity. And a true follower of Christ will, will have a hatred for sin in all its shapes and forms. His own sin, he'll mourn that. Blessed are they that mourn. And we mourn over sin most of all, as well as death. For they shall be comforted. And what is the comfort? We can have victory over sin. He breaks the power of cancelled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood avails for me. And the true follower of Christ will, will want to strive against sin with all their heart. And their strength and their energy and their hatred. Why? Because if they're true followers of Christ, they'll want to be like him. And they'll have a hatred for sin. Isn't that a problem today with many who profess the name of Christ? They say on the one hand they love the Saviour. But yet they toy with sin. It doesn't impact them. They, they don't see it as it really is. Also, we, we will love what God loves. Not only will we take holiness and sin seriously... But, but we, we want to, to love and enjoy the things that God loves and enjoys. We will be gracious, we'll, we will be kind we, we, in our treatment of others, and that will be very important. We want to live a life of fellowship and prayer before the Lord, we who have been redeemed by blood and reconciled to God and received uh, as children adopted into the family. Um, we, we, we want to engage in fellowship with God. Isn't it strange if someone professes to be a believer and makes a claim that they're saved, but, but they have no desire to have a hatred for sin. They have no desire to pray. They don't come to the prayer meeting in the church. They never meet with God on their own in their home. They, 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 they maybe even can't be bothered coming to church anymore. They don't read their Bible. Well, 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 what are we going to say about such a person? Well, we're going to question whether they're truly saved or not. Isn't that right? The practical outworking of walking worthy of the gospel is we'll, we'll be joyful in Christ. The Bible says rejoice in the Lord always. Again I say rejoice. And here's Paul in prison and he's rejoicing. He's in Christ. He's not the spirit. He's not the scourge because his joy is in Christ. He's got the joy of the Lord. He's not joying in a set of circumstances. 
The circumstances change. Yours will change and mine will change. But his joy is in Christ. Christ doesn't change. We'll also live in light of eternity. We'll keep eternity's values in view. We'll live for the salvation of the lost. We, we want to spread the gospel. Now, here's Paul, uh, and he, he says, Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. And what I'm saying, it's not only a priority for us, but, but think of the practicality of it. What does it mean? It means live for the glory of God. To hate sin, to love what God loves, to be gracious in your dealing with others, to be to be kind and patient and thoughtful, to, to live a life of prayer and fellowship before the Lord, to be joyful in Christ, to keep eternity's values in view, and to aim to win the lost. That's what it means. There's a story told of an American couple that come to London. They were taking a bus tour, going around to see the sights. They were wanting to enjoy the tour, to hear the guide. But they said in their testimony later that was impossible. Why? Because of the loud, coarse conversation of passengers at the front. They were really upset. People were, of course, raising their eyebrows and shaking their heads. And people felt like going up to them and saying, look, would you lot at the front, shut up. We're trying to listen to this guy. The man discovered later that they were Americans. He said they didn't leave a good impression to all that were on the bus. He also said they don't represent the best of the United States of America. But isn't that so true? You see, we ought to pay attention to our actions, our attitudes, or our announcements, and give this thought does this adorn the gospel? You see, this is commanded. This is not something that's optional. Whenever he said, only let your conversation be as become of the gospel, it's in the context of him issuing a command, a directive. Something that's, that's important that we, we, we give careful heed to. To walk worthy of the gospel. Notice, secondly, and very quickly, will witness wisely for the gospel. He goes on in the text and says that whether I come and see or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs that ye stand fast with one mind. Now we'll pause there. Stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. The word stand fast means be steadfast. To be stationary. The thought is of a, a Roman military formation. And the soldiers are standing shoulder to shoulder. Back to back with their shields up around themselves protecting them. With their spears out and their shields of course above their head. And that, of course, is the strongest defence position that's possible. The defence position that's needed at all costs. And these soldiers, of course, were to hold their ground regardless of the danger or the opposition. And that's exactly what Paul means. Be like a military formation. Stand shoulder to shoulder together. 
have your shield erected and hold fast with that same mindset to your belief without any compromise, regardless of the cost. It's to have a, a military mindset. Hold down the fort for your church. Isn't the big danger that faces the church today is not to stand fast? Isn't the big danger today that individually and collectively the, the church can be blown about? Uh, isn't this what Paul says? He tells us here in Ephesians 4 that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. It's not a big danger that we don't stand fast. And we'll not witness wisely for the gospel if we don't stand fast. And to stand fast, we need this military mindset. There's a danger of leaving off defending the gospel. There's a danger of leaving off our first love. Isn't that what happened to the Ephesian church? When Paul wrote to them, he, he encouraged them to abound more and more in the love of Christ. And 40 years on, in Revelation 2, he is writing to the very same church, and he's much to commend them, and yet he says this, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, thou hast left thy first love. And isn't that true for individuals? Isn't that true of us collectively as a church? So, so how can we stand fast? The answer is supplied in the text. If you look at it, it says there in Philippians 1 verse 27 that ye stand fast in one spirit. Now, now I, I believe that's a reference to the Holy Spirit. How can we stand fast in a world of trouble? In our own strength, by our own power? The answer is no. It's only by the power of the Spirit of God. Think of what the church faces today. Think of this push for the liberalisation of abortion, to, to, to bring it in line with the United Kingdom and the 1967 Abortion Act. Did you know that nine million babies have been murdered by abortion from the act was ever implemented? You think of the push today for same-sex marriage. And let's make no mistake about it, that the, the left who are without God and Christ in the world are pushing very hard for a change to the traditional view of marriage. You think about the erosion of the, the Sabbath day, where, where there's little or no respect now for Sunday. It's treated as any other day. And there's a push to, to change the very fabric of, of society within Northern Ireland. Go, go down to Forestside today. See the multiplicity of cars. People are there in doing their shopping. The shops are open, of course, the big shops from one to six. You see, the world is opposed to us. The world wants to squeeze us into a particular mold. Our, 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 our own inward remaining corruption, of course, rises up against us and, and, and has a thought and a mindset of its own. And, of course, the devil and all the minions of hell are totally opposed to us. He says in verse 28, And in nothing terrified by your adversaries. And we have many adversaries. And here's three outlined in the Bible. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And what's the church to do individually and collectively? To stand fast. How? By one spirit. That is the Holy Spirit. Doesn't Luke 11, 13 encourage us? If ye then being evil know how to give good gifts unto your children. How much more shall your heavenly Father... Give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him. Let me ask this morning, 
When was the last time you prayed for a fresh infilling of the Spirit? Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, Paul says, but be filled with the Spirit. You can be filled with the Spirit. If you're born of the Spirit and dwelt by the Spirit, you can be filled with the Spirit. If we're going to witness wisely for Christ, yes, we need to stand fast with a military mindset, but we need to be filled with the Spirit of God. We're not doing our own strength and power. I read recently about a storm that happened over in America and some big tree in the outskirts of some city, a, a massive big tree that you hardly get your arms around, it had blown over. Everybody was amazed. They were talking about it in the town. It was on the radio. It was in the press. How could this big tree be blown over? It had stood for years. And then, of course, when the analysts came to uh, take the tree away, they discovered, here's how it was blown over. It was rotten from the inside out. It was hollow on the inside. It had been eaten away over the time. And you see, if we don't walk worthy of the gospel, we'll not witness wisely for the gospel, we'll not stand fast, because we'll be blown over. And if we don't stand in the spirit, living with the mindset of holiness unto the Lord, we need to pray individually for the power of the Spirit. You see the church that's not standing fast and firm, you know what it really lacks? It lacks the power of the Spirit. And it is not our fear for ourselves, a fear for our own church, that, that, that such as the absence of the power of the Spirit, that we can't stand fast because you can never do it in your own strength. I had one final thought, and I, I just... Uh, leave it with you, to work well for the gospel. Notice the, the, the last bit of the text. It says, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Paul changes the um, illustration from the military field to the world of athletics. And he's thinking together for the church as a team. You see, the, the, the coach to the team would say, win together or lose together. The team, of course, says, together everyone achieves more. But Paul is really saying, when you come together, you have the same mindset. You have the same end goal. You have the same purpose. You're striving together for what? The faith of the gospel. You're not opposing each other. In other words, you're not divided. Hadn't disunity crept into this church? Didn't he have to say to a couple of the women, uh, he, 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 he tells them there, uh, uh, to I beseech Eodinus and beseech Synthage that they be of the same mind of the Lord. Uh, well, there's a problem of disunity here. D disunity over many things. But Paul's saying it's not right. And he's saying you must pull together, you must agonize together, strive together for the work of the gospel. That to, ought to be your chief goal. Your, your proper motivation, your, 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 your common goal is for, for the faith of the gospel, to, to stand for the gospel, know what the gospel is, and, and to spread the gospel. To work well for the gospel. I ask this morning, as you think about modeling your life on the gospel, to ask yourself three questions. And it's this. As we, we leave the house of God, am I willing to walk worthy of the gospel? 
Am I willing to witness wisely for the gospel? Am I willing to work well for the gospel? <coughs> Modeling your life in the gospel. And, and if we get sight of the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, then these three things will impress themselves upon us. And we'll want to do it to the glory of God. May the Lord take these few thoughts and bless them to you this morning. Thank you for coming. Thank you for listening. I know I've only scratched the surface of this text of Scripture, but I trust I've opened it up a little bit and whetted your appetite to learn deeper about the great truths that are revealed here.